I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying from Merrick. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Oh, hey, it's that cardigan that you left in an Uber, Allie Ward, here with an episode about our squishy, juicy machines and how they run. Just a content warning up top. So this episode discusses really sensitive themes like diet culture and caloric intake and the psychological and physical effects of food restriction. And it includes many listeners' personal experience with the term obesity as well. And the content may be triggering for those with a history of or a sensitivity to disordered eating. We also discuss the body mass index, which is still used by medical professionals, but acknowledged by many sociologists to be rooted in structural oppression and racism. And that's something that many scientists and health professionals don't condone. So those are some warnings, but let's get into it. So I've wanted to interview this guy. I know I say this like every episode, but for years. So we're going to dive into it. Metabolisms, how do they work? What's up? Who am I? What's going on in there? So this guy did his undergrad work in anthropology got a PhD from Harvard University in biological anthropology and has been a professor of anthropology for nearly 20 years, during which time he's been an associate research professor of global health at Duke Global Health Institute. And he's now a professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University. He knows what's up. His CV is 23 pages long. I was like looking through his list of papers it gave me actual vertigo. And then I found out we're the same age, and I don't like to think about it. He's also written several books, including the 2021 release, Burn, New Research Blows the Lid Off How We Really Burn Calories, Lose Weight, and Stay Healthy. And yes, we're going to address the science and the culture of all of it. And also just a quick warning, we do discuss, of course, calories, some diet culture in this episode, as well as weaponized language. We discuss all of that, just so you know. But first, just some thank yous to patrons of ologies at patreon.com slash ologies who spend one burning hot dollar a month to join, and they can submit questions to before we record. Uh, also, thanks to everyone who's out there wearing Ologies merch from ologiesmerch.com. For no dollars, though, you can really help us out and leave a review. And also, I read your reviews. And if 
you do not believe me. Thank you for the recent one from Rattery, whose MRI technicians let them listen to ologies while getting an MRI and said that this podcast is like a weighted blanket where you learn cool facts. Thanks, Rattery. I hope all's well. Okay, evolutionary anthropology. We're going to get to it. How did humans evolve? Ancient menus, mitochondria, trivia, how science can help you talk to your body, perspectives on some sticky medical terms, isotope magic, how much exercise hunter-gatherers get, carnivore diets, flim-flam, scales, the history of the body mass index, and what to do if you're in kind of a bit of a slump, according to science, with author, professor, metabolism expert, and evolutionary anthropologist, Dr. Herman Ponser. This episode, I'm, I don't know. I wish that we had like a full 24-hour marathon to do this episode because I have so many <laughs> questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll start with the easy one. If you could say your first and last name and the pronouns you use. Sure. I am Herman Ponser. He, him, his. Got it. And doctor, of course. Sure. I mean, between friends, whatever. What ologist do you call yourself? Yeah, let's say, let's call it evolutionary anthropology. Okay, first off. You're an expert in metabolism. And mm-hmm. <laughs> first off, metabolism. What even is it? How, where yeah. does it come from? Yeah. So, you know, you are made of 37 trillion plus or minus uh, cells. And every one of those cells has work to do all day. They've got to bring nutrients in and break them down and build them back up. And all that work takes energy. And all that energy together is what we call your metabolism. And when you are looking at, say, your Fitbit or your Aura Ring or whatever, mm. and it says, based on your height and weight, you probably burn 1,700 calories a day or 1,200 yeah. or whatever. Does it have any idea what the fuck it's talking about? Or is that so off? It's a little bit better than a random number generator, okay. but just a little. <laughs> uh, <Wait>. so, <laughs> it, it, so it gets this much right. It's, it is... Most of what you burn every day, even if you're an active person, most of the calories you burn every day are just, it's, it's not about activity. It's about all the other stuff your body's doing. As you're, as we're talking here, every fifth breath, I think, is the oxygen needed to feed your brain, hmm. right? So 20% of your breathing goes to fueling your brain, whether you're filling a whiteboard with physics theorems or watching my dog breathe because she's old and precious. That's true, that that your brain uses a lot of energy. And so we can all feel good about that. Um, Your brain runs a 5K every day. It's 300 calories a day. Uh, So, you know, it's most of the energy you use is not activity. And so when you have a Fitbit or something like that, and it's trying to, you know, kind of ballpark or guess your energy expenditure based on activity, it's really missing a large part of what's going on. It does have your height and weight in there. And it's true that the bigger you are, the more cells you're made of, the more calories you burn. So that part is more or less right. But even there, there's so much variation person to person that it's it's just a real wild guess. Okay. I mean, I understand BMI is not really accurate at mm. all, right? Well, it depends on what you're trying to measure, right? Uh, BMI is great for knowing your BMI. 
what? So BMI, side note, stands for body mass index. And mathematically, it's your body mass in kilograms divided by the square of your height in meters. And medicine's optimal BMI lands somewhere between 18.5 and 24.9. And this is a little fun fact. So the body mass index was invented in the 1830s by an Austrian scientist named Lambert Adolphe Jacques Quetelet, who, surprise, was an astronomer not even a medical doctor. And this was during a time when physicians were just beginning to learn that germs exist and that bloodletting doesn't solve all the ailments. So the inventor of the BMI, this astronomer, also influenced early proponents of eugenics. So the color-coded BMI charts at the doctor's office really uh, don't seem to include that kind of trivia. But as we've mentioned before, so any legit MD can tell you that, of course, BMI does not tell the whole story and it's not fair to a lot of folks. But nevertheless, as a broad ballpark of cardiovascular or pancreatic risks or joint issues related to body mass, doctors we've had on the show have said it's a very rough and far from perfect metric uh, you know, it's, if BMI is trying to get at your fat percentage, which is what most people, you know, that's kind of how we use it. We think about if you have a high BMI, it means you're carrying too much fat. But of course, you know, your height and weight, you don't, those numbers can't tell you if you're carrying a lot of muscle versus a lot of fat, for example. And so people who carry a lot of muscle tend to, you know, you'll have a higher BMI, uh, cause your weight will be higher, even though really your, your body fat might be low if you're an athlete or something like that. So yeah, BMI is problematic. It's an imperfect measure, but it's one of the best ones we have. And it does do a pretty good job in aggregate at the population level, figuring out who is at higher risk for different diseases. You know, if I know any one thing about you, I'm not going to know enough, right? But if I know, put all those data points together, then I can start to put a picture together. BMI is just one thing about you. But when I put it in the context of other stuff about you, then I can begin to put a, a real picture of your health together. So does metabolism depend a lot on your muscle mass or your lean to lipid ratio? I also like, what if you have big, heavy bones? How does that work? Yeah. Well, that's, those are all good questions. So uh, the biggest factor is how much what we call fat-free mass you carry versus your fat mass. And so all your organs and muscle, aside from fat, fat's an organ too, but aside from your fat, all of those organs you know, your liver and brain and kidneys, they all burn a lot of energy. So the more of that that you are and the less fat that you are, the more calories you'll burn at a given size. So to, to put it in, you know, real terms, you have the same two people that both weigh, let's say 150 pounds, but one of them is 30% body fat and the other one is only 10% body fat. They weigh the same amount, but the person is only 10% body fat. More of them is lean tissue. It's, it's, it's organs and muscle. And so that person who's only 10% body fat will burn more calories than the person who's 30% body fat, just because fat's pretty quiet. It doesn't do a whole lot each day. And so it doesn't burn many calories. Let's rewind though. Can we go back to the fat as an organ? What? Yeah. What's that about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, fat's not just hanging out. It makes hormones. It pulls in nutrients out of your blood as storage, and, and then it sends them back into your blood when you need them later for energy. It's doing jobs that other tissues don't do. So yeah, you need it. Is it true that you don't get more fat cells? They just get more capacious or just get more stuffed? What's the deal with yeah, that? Yeah. Usually when you are adding fat, you're not growing more fat cells as much as you're just packing the fat cells you have with lipids, right? So your fat cells have this enormous capacity to just get bigger 
by pulling in that. So what happens when you get a BBL? Do do they, you have the same number of fat cells, but it's just maybe in different places that you find aesthetically more desirable? When you, um, that's a, you're going to have Brazilian to butt lift. <laughs> it's a Brazilian, a Brazilian butt, butt lift. <laughs> I don't know. That's LA. Now, so isn't that one of the, there's some of those where they take other people's fat, but this oh, is one I where you know. take your own fat. This is your, they take your own fat? I think, yeah, I think they take like your muffin top and they put it in uh, your boobs or your butt or your face. I mean, I don't know if there's like a Jack Spratt website where you're like, I've got a little too much if anyone wants it. <laughs> I don't have enough, like a Facebook marketplace tab. I don't know. So you ha- you're retaining your fat cells, but they're just in different parts of the body. I, I, you see, I now this really is a two-way street, Allie. I'm learning from you. Things I didn't know. But I think that I love that. It's just like you turn yourself into Play-Doh and you just push mm-hmm. things around. Migrate them. Yeah. I mean, so one thing to think about there is when they do that, yeah, they're taking cells, right? They're not taking like just stuff. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I think people think about fat as being this kind of like inert stuff that's not alive. It's alive, man. And, and so they're moving that around. I can imagine that's got some interesting consequences for how everything works. And yes, okay, so a Brazilian butt lift or a BBL, it's the redistribution of adipose tissue that's abducted from your stomach or your thighs, and then it's purified and whisked away to a new part of the body. And the relocation, it might change your life, or it might be a mistake. Your mileage may vary. Uh, One beauty magazine urged those considering the procedure to first Google BBL done wrong. And friends, This may lead you to scroll image searches and stumble upon the saggy tragedy called diaper booty. And it does look how it sounds. But unfortunately, there may be more at risk than just your booty, as explained by the 2017 article in the Journal of Aesthetic Surgery titled Report on Mortality from Gluteal Fat Grafting, which warns that Despite the growing popularity of gluteal fat grafting, significantly higher mortality rates appear to be associated with gluteal fat grafting than with any other aesthetic surgical procedure. So it's risky. What What's happening here? Okay, so I looked into this and stray lumps of your fat can break free and then just enjoy a trip through your arteries resulting in a pulmonary embolism. And we're seeing more and more reports of deaths from this procedure as people are traveling to potentially sketchy clinics for beauty tourism. Also, for more on harmful beauty standards uh, here all over planet Earth, you can see the two-part Kalology episode. We'll link that in the show notes. But yeah, in terms of metabolism, if you store any more fat, it's likely to wind up wherever your fat cells were surgically relocated. They're basically trucking some cells, sounds like, from your muffin mm-hmm. top, as I understand it, to your <laughs> yep. So fat cells are more chill and mm. muscle cells are maybe burning more energy. They're a little bit more active. Is this a mitochondrial thing? We always hear that they're the powerhouse oh, of the cell. Oh, very good. Yeah. Thank you. So mitochondria determine how much oxygen you can bring in. You need oxygen to be able to make ATP. ATP is the molecule that your cells actually use as energy. And it's actually, it's a rechargeable battery. So uh, you have ATP, which is adenosine triphosphate, and that's converted from adenosine diphosphate, ADP. And so basically you're taking this two phosphate molecule, you add a phosphate, make it a three phosphate molecule. It's all interesting stuff, but basically you're recharging this molecule. So you run on rechargeable batteries 
Uh, when they're charged up, they're called ATP. And you need oxygen to do that conversion, to, to charge up your batteries. And the more mitochondria you have, the more you can do that. So yeah, that's how that's all linked. And your muscles certainly have more mitochondria than your fat cells. Yep, that's right. So not everyone is able to manipulate their body composition for all kinds of reasons, from physical disabilities to mental health challenges. There are economic factors. I totally get that. But if you're someone who can and wants to get slightly more jacked, maybe you want to flex it yourself in the mirror. I don't know. Maybe you want to have an easier time helping people put their carry-ons in the overhead bins. But you can also do it, if you need a reason, for the mitochondria. So this 2015 study in the Journal of Medical Science and Sports Exercise titled Resistance Exercise Training Alters Mitochondrial Function in Human Skeletal Muscle does contain a spoiler. And it reports that the loss of mitochondrial competency is associated with several different chronic illnesses and that endurance exercise, it's long been known to increase mitochondrial function. However, as the title said, they looked into resistance exercise as well, like weightlifting and bodyweight exercise and yoga. And that also appears to be a means to augment the function of muscle mitochondria. And if you can get stronger, it could be an act of love to your future self, as detailed by the study, Effects of Exercise on Mitochondrial Content and Function in Aging Human Skeletal Muscle, which was published by the Journal of Gerontology. And it notes that exercise enhances mitochondria electron transport chain activity in older human skeletal muscle. What does that mean? You'll feel better longer. So present day you, you might be groaning, bewildered in front of a kettlebell. But future you is like, get in there and get it, bitch. Do it for us. But let's go in the other direction in time. Let's travel back in time to mm. our hairier, shorter ancestors. Where did these, <laughs> where did our systems change or evolve? When did we start veering off how much we use our body and what we're eating? Where did things get too far too fast? Wow. Well, I mean, how far back do you want to go, right? Like, first of all, mitochondria are these, are like a bacteria that eukaryotic cells basically engulfed and started using as a power source. That happened like 2 billion years ago or something like that. It's a long time. Is that, that's true? How did yeah. I never know that? Yeah, you're a chimera. We all are. <gasps> yeah, all your mitochondria are little bacteria relics. Isn't that no. wild? Yes. Yeah. I wow. didn't realize that we were running on other animal batteries. That's, that's wild. Yep. I never knew that. In all the cell biology I took for years and years, I don't think I ever grokked that. Oh my gosh. Okay. So we engulfed these bacteria. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm not you, but billions of years ago, a couple yeah. billion, billion years ago. Anyway. And so that's when the whole kind of story starts. And then, man, then I'm around, I don't know, 220 million years ago, you get reptiles that decide to burn their metabolisms faster and you get warm-blooded animals that we call mammals today. So there's a big step there. Primates get started about 65 million years ago after the dinosaurs uh, get knocked out. It's up. And then our story where apes, you know, apes are kind of like a 20 million year old story. And our lineage is like 7 million years. We're like a 7 million year old branch from that with all these little dead ends and crazy things like Lucy and all these other species. And then our particular species, Homo sapiens, well, let's say our group, the genus Homo, mm -hmm. is about two and a half million years old. And that's when we think our kind of modern metabolism starts shaping up. And so 
that faster metabolism separates us kind of physiologically from the other apes. So we burn our energy faster than other apes do. And we think that that's to help support our big brains. We're more active than other apes are. We have bigger babies more often than other apes do. We live a lot longer and that takes energy to invest in your body. So probably your, your modern metabolism kind of starts shaping up over the last 2 million years and everything is going great. And then, you know, we build ourselves these crazy zoos that we live in today and everything kind of goes to pieces. That's the short story. <laughs> That's the short story. <laughs> and when you say that we our metabolisms are speeding up, is that because our brains get bigger and they're kind of like a V8 versus a V6, like just using mm -hmm. more fuel? No, I, we get more expensive parts. So it's the V8 versus the V6. We have a bigger brain. Our reproductive systems are running faster so we can have these bigger babies more often. Mm -hmm. We are more physically active. And so you need to be able to have a diet that's got a high enough energy content and to be able to digest it down and absorb those nutrients. You have to turn those nutrients into ATP. You have to burn those. So the whole system kind of has to get ramped up to be able to support a faster metabolism. And so we see that happening over the past 2 million years or so, we think. So 1.4 billion years ago, your far off slimy little ancestors engulfed bacteria and they made it ours and used it as a rechargeable battery that runs on hot dogs and flat white lattes. And then as we branched off into mammals, which branched off into apes, which branched off into the genus Homo millions of years ago, and then Homo sapiens 300,000 years ago, we started growing these bigger brains and babies and needed a faster engine burning up more fuel to get us through our, our journeys of life. And in his book, Burn, Dr. Ponser describes his working with the Hadza hunter-gatherer tribe in northern Tanzania. And I'll read you an excerpt of his description. He writes, The one thing we knew for certain going into the Hadza energetics project was that life as a hunter-gatherer is tough. Like other hunter-gatherers and like all people prior to 12,000 years ago, the Hadza have no domesticated animals or plants, no machines or cars or guns, no modern conveniences to help them get by. Every morning, they wake up with the sun and set out into the wild savanna for the day's food. Women typically go in groups, relying on their encyclopedic knowledge of the plants around them and the latest info on what's in season to find productive groves of berries or tubers. Several species of wild tubers form the core of the Hadza diet, and a woman can spend two or three hours on any given day digging them out of the hard, rocky soil with a sharpened wooden stick. They can easily cover five miles or more on a foray, often with a child in a sling on their back and loaded down with 20 pounds of hard-won tubers on the return trip. Back at camp, women are often busy tending to kids, preparing food, or collecting firewood. Men usually leave camp alone, preferring to hunt by themselves to improve the odds of sneaking up on a zebra, baboon, antelope, or anything else unlucky enough to cross their path. They aren't picky. Just about everything except snakes and other reptiles are on the menu. Hadza men make powerful bows with giraffe sinew strings and add a glob of poison to the shaft of their arrows just below the sharp iron tip, poison strong enough to kill a zebra with a single shot. Men regularly break from hunting to collect wild honey, climbing 30 feet into the crown of massive, ancient baobab trees and hacking into the giant hollow limbs to plunder an angry hive. They'll bring the game or honey back to camp, covering 10 or 15 miles round trip to share with the community. 
He continues, we've quantified the amount of physical activity that the Hadza adults get each day, and the results are staggering. Both men and women average more than two hours of hard work each day, roughly 10 times more than the average American. That's in addition to the walking. They get more physical activity in a day than the typical Westerner gets in a week. The kids and old folks are active too. Kids are often tasked with fetching water, which can be a half a mile from camp. And men and women in their 60s, 70s, and even 80s are out most days foraging like they did in their prime. This impressive amount of physical activity isn't unique to the Hadza, he writes. All hunter-gatherers lead lives that would make Westerners melt. And while you wouldn't know it from our cushy, urbanized existence today, this extreme level of physical activity was the norm for all humans only a few thousand years ago. So yes, Herman has spent a lot of time across the world pondering your pancreas and butt muscles. So how did he land this gig? Well, I got into this because I wanted to understand how people evolve. And there's nothing you can understand. If you had to pick one thing to know about an organism, you'd pick its metabolism, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It tells you the most in the smallest amount of time about <laughs> what an organism is all about. And so I just wanted to know how humans, how the human body works and how it got this way. I never had any intention of doing any public health stuff. And then we started to get all this really you know, interesting and kind of useful data on hunter-gatherers and activity levels and how that affects metabolism. And all of a sudden, we I was like, oh, well, I guess we do have things to share and to contribute in the public health space. And so then it's been a lot of that ever since, and it still is today. At what point did we go from maybe small packs of us to bigger villages and start hunting and gathering versus agriculture? How did our metabolism and our, our needs and our fuel change? Yeah. So, okay, so hunting and gathering is, if you think about the genus Homo, that is a, a hunting and gathering genus. So that's two and a half million years. That's before Homo sapiens shows up. We're like the latest hunter-gatherer model, but we're mm -hmm. from a family of hunter-gatherers. All the genus Homo is all hunting and gathering. And that changes things because all of a sudden you're sharing food uh, a lot. It's, it's crazy to think about this, but there's no other species where half of the group goes and forages on plant foods. And the other half of the group goes and, and pretends they're carnivores and goes after animal foods. And then at the end of the day, they all, they all share it back at camp at the end of the day. That's a really crazy way to make a living. Do you want my pickle? But what it does is you can always depend on the plant foods. So you have this dependable safety net food or staple. And then the animal foods, the game that you go after, have tons of, of fat and protein and, and they're really nutritious. You know, you, you've won the lottery kind of packages. You get a zebra or a giraffe. You combine those together, man, and that's unbeatable. And that's why the last 2 million years has been all about the genus Homo just taking over. Wow. Um, and our metabolism kind of responds to that, right? So that's that shared energy economy is, is the fuel we needed to evolve these faster metabolisms and our bigger brains and, and all of it. You know, what, what sets humans apart from other apes? We're really social with these big brains. We share all the time. We're really cooperative. All of that happens over the last 2 million years, and it's all tied directly to the foods we're eating, the ways that our bodies are using it, and the hunting and gathering way of life. And then agriculture 10,000 years ago? Yeah, that's a good ballpark. Yeah, 10 or 12,000 years. This is really crazy. Uh, agriculture, people figured it out all around the same time, independently, <gasps> all over the world. Really? Yeah. So like people in the Americas, 
figured it out. Uh, you know, the Aztec and Maya, that, that's famously. And in the Fertile Crescent, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that you probably heard about if you were, you know, my generation learned about in social studies, mm-hmm. um, the Near East. And then, of course, in the in East Asia, that they figured that out there too, and probably other places in Africa. And so, yeah, it's one of these like kind of good ideas. Isn't that amazing that sometimes you have these great ideas and they get, you know, figured out independently. It's just kind of like the time has come for them. And agriculture is one of those ideas. What a trend watch. <laughs> the hottest thing right now, agriculture. That's right. Are you still going out there to get your food? <laughs> and for more about where fire plays into our history and its role in our brain size hundreds of thousands of years ago, yeah, we have a whole episode dedicated to that. It's called Pyrotechnology. So we'll link that in the show notes. But going forward to the switch to golden fields of wheat and rye, It didn't happen as fast as like a TikTok home interior trend, which I'm sorry goes too fast for anyone to keep up with, and it's wasteful. That's neither here nor there. But rather, agriculture took up until 6,000 years ago to hit Ireland and the UK. And of course, some places continue with hunting and gathering longer, with changes gradually occurring with livestock and plant crops, and then more massive changes as those lands were colonized. How about grains? So did we tend to veer toward grains because of storage reasons and because it was more Mm. predictable? Like, did we kind of shift our carbohydrate to protein? What happened there when we became agrarian? Yeah. So a bunch of things happen. Um, The the foods narrow, first of all, because now you're dependent on a few crops that, you know, you really spend a lot of your time and energy getting. And so the, the diet kind of narrows. You're certainly eating a lot of carbs in, in pretty much every far, early farming culture that we know of, but that's not a, such a new thing. There's this idea out there that hunter-gatherers were eating all this meat and they hardly had any carbs. And as far as we can tell, that's completely bogus. That's, you know, oh, that, that just isn't true. It's totally bunk. Hunter-gatherer diets in the past were really, really diverse. Depending on where you lived in the world, different foods might be available to you. And so, yeah, if you live in the Arctic where nothing grows, then surprise, surprise, yeah, you're going to eat a lot of meat mm-hmm. and fish. But- Elsewhere in the world, people eat a variety of diets and a lot of it's pretty carb heavy. So that the carb content probably wasn't the new feature. It was more about a couple things. First of all, you start farming and the food becomes even more dependable. Mm-hmm. You can start kind of manipulating these animals and plants to provide more energy per bite. And so, you know, corn, for example, is a classic one. It goes from this little smaller than your pinky kind of a, of a head of grass and turns into the corn cobs that we know today. Wow. Uh, domesticated animals today on farms carry twice as much fat as wild animals do, right? So the wild game that we would have hunted has only half the fat that you'd have on a domesticated animal. And so we start manipulating these, these species. And by the way, we're manipulating their metabolisms too. So this is, you know, if you're me, everything's a metabolism story. And guess what happens? We take all these extra calories and populations explode because we turn those calories into babies. And so populations grow, <laughs> uh, villages grow, but at the same time, now we're like living really close together in population densities that we never used to, and people start getting sick. And so you see like contagious disease, you see people actually get shorter because they spend their childhood sick with all this contagious disease rather than being able to sort of be you know, less exposed to that in, in a smaller hunter-gatherer camp. So, I mean, it just changes everything. What's with all these babies? Okay, well, our changing diet enabled our species to make 
more babies, of course, but also feed those babies earlier with grainy mush. And earlier mush feeding meant shorter periods of breastfeeding, which means that a person is fertile again sooner, and that means more babies. So as a species, grain meant success. Until then, it didn't. When did we get kind of too rich for our own good? I mean, if we think of a Uh, calorie, if we think of fuel, we're essentially like sitting on an oil mine, most of the world, to the point we are today. Like, are we too wealthy with energy? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a few (laughs) ways to think about that. First of all, obviously, we had this global obesity crisis. Mm-hmm. And that's telling us right there. I mean, you don't have to go any further than that to know that we are eating more calories than we're burning off. That's almost entirely driven by changes in our diet and the fact that we have just so many more calories available to us. I'm, I'm talking to you from my home. I have at literally at arm's reach, like, I don't know, I haven't counted it up, but like I said, I think it's a billion calories, oh, more or less. God. Uh, it's just the holidays. So, you know, I could like you know, eat a week of chocolate if I wanted to right now. Okay, before anyone gets worried, we'll discuss the term obesity at length in a minute. But in terms of caloric resources, so poverty and food scarcity abound in so many countries, including whichever one you're in right now. And in the U.S., reports estimate that more than 44 million people face hunger, and that includes one in five children. Globally, Estimates range from 700 million to 2.4 billion people who experience hunger and food scarcity. So when we talk about a wealth of calories, that is by no means universal, far from it. And conflict in some regions can account for a lot of that, but unemployment and low wages are also huge drivers of food scarcity. So why do some of us have too much fuel for our physiological needs than our evolution has bargained for? Well, because just in like the blink of an evolutionary eye, our food sources have changed. And in the last hundred years, what's become affordable, particularly in food deserts, is lower in nutrients, but richer in fuel, like a higher octane than the engine we've evolved for the last 2.5 million years of our genus. So your ancestors... They did not have prescription antibiotics. They did not have general anesthesia or x-rays, but they also didn't have marshmallow peeps in every color. That's crazy, right? That's never happened. That isn't how life's supposed to work. And not only that, but the way we make the calories is really peculiar. So would you care to guess how many calories <laughs> of, you know, of, of fossil fuels, basically, because this is what we do. We take all this energy from the outside world. And right now we're, we're hooked on fossil fuels to do this. It used to just be fire and stuff. But now it's at a whole other level of fossil fuels. We take all that energy and we use that to make our food, right? To plow our fields or to make fertilizer. Would you care to guess how many calories it takes to make 100 calories of food? Oh, God. 100 calories of food. I was going to guess 500, but then I upped it because I figured that was too conservative. So I don't know what I'm doing here. A uh, 1,000? Yeah, you're, that's, that's about right. Am it, I right? Yeah, it's like a 10 times more. It's about eight times the energy uh, it takes to make the, the calories on your plate. And that's, can you just imagine, that's insane, right? No other species yeah. can survive if it burns more energy than it gets. Oh, so we should all just drink gasoline, probably. <laughs> um, you heard it here first, people. <laughs> it's not intended to diagnose or treat any illness. Um, <laughs> What about in terms of this epidemic of, I'm going to air quotes, obesity, 
I know that a lot of us might have a hard time with those words or those labels, or Mm -hmm. if you go into your physician, they might say very clinically, like you're at this, you're at that, you're at this, but also socially, so many people have been objects of oppression. So how do we parse out what's healthy versus what's just body shaming? That is a great question. And you're absolutely right that there's way too much stigma and moralizing around this. I wish it were otherwise, but it is still the fact that people who are carrying more than is healthy in terms of body fat are at a greater risk for a whole lot of of different diseases. Diabetes is probably the main one, but heart disease, kidney disease. We saw with the COVID, the first wave of the COVID pandemic, that people who were overweight had a much greater risk of serious complications with that. And so I wish I could tell you that, yeah, it's just all stigma and it's all cultural and we should just ignore it. But in good conscience, I don't think I can. I, I think there's just too many very solid studies out there showing very clearly that carrying a lot of extra weight is not healthy. And when you carry that weight as fat, I think the fact that it's gotten so stigmatized is super, oh, it's terrible on a personal level. There's a personal tragedy. There's a personal cost to that, obviously. But it's also counterproductive to the public health intent you know, of some of these measures that, that end up being seen as stigmatizing. And when people just totally turn off because they're feeling like they're not being heard or they're feeling like it's more oppressive than helpful, then yeah, of course, people are going to tune out. So that's how I parse it personally. I just, I was not sure how to approach this episode because I want to be inclusive. I want to be sensitive. So I don't want to toss terms at you that feel painful or that are insulting. And also the current scientific language for a range in body fat composition, or rather the less accurate BMI, is as follows. Underweight, healthy weight, overweight, and obese. And as Aubrey Gordon, who's the host of the podcast Maintenance Phase, she points out in her book, what we don't talk about when we talk about fat. This term obese has a dark etymology. It means having eaten oneself fat. And the term has been weaponized against fat people for decades. And also, side note, many people prefer the term fat having reclaimed it. So the word obese means different things to different people. There is currently far from a consensus. So I wanted you all to inform me with your lived experience. I wanted to hear what you had to say. So I asked listeners on X and Blue Sky calling only for medical professionals or those who self-identify as fat, what terminology they prefer when talking about body composition in a scientific and public health sense. And I think it was it was pretty, pretty consistent. Uh, no, it wasn't. So Sohail Ali says, my ophthalmologist just told me that I'm medically obese and explained the requirements for being called obese. I'm okay with fat or obese since there are requirements for being called obese. And A Club Prez says, I like the term fat as a self-descriptor. But Lord of Goats says, I don't speak for all fellow fatties, but at 6'1 and 375 pounds, I'd say there's a clear distinction between clinical terms and social slang and context matters. He says, no clinician should be using terminology that was immediately lifted from social media. K Sarah Sarah X says, isn't overweight the correct term? Factual and with less negative connotations than obese, fat, because you could also be underweight as well. But Confetti Noodles says, 
disagree with overweight. Fat is a neutral adjective and a neutral descriptor of body types. Additionally, overweight is a word that most fat acceptance folks avoid because it's like over what weight exactly? But Dr. Suzanne says, if someone called me obese or fat, it would take me several days to recover from it. Overweight is as close as I can get without a full-on meltdown. Zigzag156 says, as a person who used to be 350 pounds and is now 250, obese is fine. It's simply a medical term to describe when someone's BMI is over 30, which is generally linked to worsening health problems. Dear Blue Earth says that I feel obese is mostly used by people who don't have good intentions at heart. They like fat, but sometimes it shocks people when you say it. Also, men use fat against you, they say. Kevin Vanday says, I used to be around 400 pounds, although now I've lost about half of that, but I never once considered obese to be a slur. If anything, I tended to use obese over fat. Birziam says, I don't ever recall being bullied with the term obese, but fat ass for sure. Someone with the handle fat man says, couldn't care less about the term used. Overweight, obese, heavy, etc. It doesn't matter to me at all. The tone and the content of how a comment was made is far more important to me reacting negatively. So yeah, it's all over the map. This was illuminating for me too how much every answer varied. But my point is, no matter where you fall, open your minds to other sensitivities, and also advocate for what feels right to you. And feel free to communicate that. Tone and intent is also important. So for God's sakes, be nice to each other and take your judgments and throw them in a volcano. Now, luckily, our lead editor, the wonderful and the brilliant Mercedes Maitland, has an undergrad degree in anthropology and a master's of science communication and happened to write her dissertation on exactly the subject. And the title of that dissertation was Investigating the Availability of Information on the Evolutionary Mismatch Hypothesis in the Media and Public Health Literature. So a lot of metabolic issues that Dr. Ponsor is talking about can be boiled down to the evolutionary mismatch hypothesis. The humans did not evolve for this life. And Mercedes cites several studies explaining that it's important to note that the health recommendations provided by an evolutionary mismatch hypothesis framework already align with standard health advice. They simply provide a higher level understanding of why those actions lead to better health. And participants in studies who were educated on the evolutionary mismatch hypothesis said that novelty led to curiosity and sustained interest and it made it easier to link the information to their own experience, she writes. So for all of us, you know, zooming out from how you look or what a dick doctor might be barking at you and looking at the history of our species can help us understand how our bodies work more. Because all people should not be held to the same standards of ability or of appearance or even metabolism. How much of that is just genetics and how much of that is your body composition, how much muscle you've been able to retain or build, things like that? Well, Okay, so that's a complicated story too. So <laughs> it's it's a lot, it, your genetics has a lot to do with whether or not you will struggle with your weight. And that's because as far as we can tell, your likelihood of putting on too much fat has to do with the way that your brain responds to food, <sighs> right? And there's a lot of different genes and a lot of different gene variants that are going to be involved in how your brain is wired. There's also, of course, the way you grew up and how you were exposed to food growing up. And so all of those things shape your brain, wire your brain in your reward systems to respond to food in a particular way. And they're going to determine if you think about food all the time and kind of can't, you know, can't miss a meal without feeling miserable. So your genes matter a whole lot. But I'll tell you what, we all had the same, our grandparents' generation 
and their grandparents' generation had the same genes we have. But though we have the same genes, roughly, as our grandparents, we have a different number of 7-Elevens and corporations that take your money and build you sugar bombs so that your health insurance company can then make a profit off of your suffering. And Herman says that's where it's complicated because the genes only matter in a bad environment. Did the 70s corn syrup explosion have a lot to do with health rates and life expectancy at all? I just want to first of all say that the 70s corn syrup explosion, if it's not a band name yet, <laughs> it, needs, it needs to be immediately. It's definitely a jam band with too many carbohydrates and simple sugars. Yeah, yeah. It's a raspberry jam band. I love it. So yeah, people always want to find the, the supervillain, right? It's not. It's not carbs. It's not sugars. It's not, I mean, none of those things are good for you, just to be real clear. Like extra sugar isn't helping anybody. But it's the kind of the combination of it all. It's the fact that, you know, all that corn syrup goes in to these ultra-processed foods that are literally engineered to be overeaten, right? That's how food companies make money is if you can't stop buying their food. Uh, and so, you know, and they're not, I, I don't even really blame them for it. That's like, you know, don't hate the player, hit the game, I believe is the expression. <laughs> yeah. They're doing what they're built to do, which is to sell food. Now, I'm sure they're not trying to make anybody sick. You sure about that? You sure about that? I don't want to believe that. Anyway, they are though, because those foods are, are you know, as close to addictive as, as they can make them legally, I think. Where does your endocrine system come in in terms of, mm. what is it, ghrelin and insulin and also just as you age your estrogen or testosterone changing or your yeah. cortisol? They You always see those... Hmm. those ads on the internet that's like, too much cortisol, you've got belly fat. And you're like, who doesn't have cortisol? There's a goddamn pandemic. Yeah. Like, where, is, <laughs> where is your endocrine system? Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So that's a great example of, again, this sort of another layer of complexity, but we can also use this to understand what's happening. So, okay. So your endocrine system, that's your hormones signaling across tissues, across organs. A, a hormone is a signal sent by one organ to another through the bloodstream. And so your endocrine system is all about the hormones sloshing back and forth, your body talking to itself. And those signals, those hormones are meant to regulate things like how hungry you feel, how full you feel, all sorts of, not, not just hunger in society, but those two. So they're going to be part of the kind of reward system. People are going to complain that I'm, I'm kind of mixing up neurotransmitters and hormones, but I'll, I'll let them complain. That's okay. Uh, they're, they're part of that reward system that either makes you feel so excited about food that you can't stop or, or not. But here's what's cool. Let's hear it. There are also hormones that your intestines make called incretins. Oh. And those hormones help you feel full and satisfied. And those are the hormones that the new class of weight loss drugs mimic. Ah. This is why these weight loss drugs are working to sort of manipulate how full you feel and therefore, you know, get control of your, your hunger in society. And I, you know, I'll be really clear. I, I don't have any investments or anything like that. I'm not going to make any money off those drugs. Somebody's going to make a lot of money on those drugs, but it's kind of exciting because back in the nineties, we started to discover the hormones around hunger and satiety, how hungry you feel, how full you feel. Ghrelin you mentioned, which is this hormone that your stomach makes when it's empty, makes you feel hungry. Mm -hmm. The other one is leptin, people might've heard of. Leptin is a hormone that your fat makes 
your fat makes leptin in response to getting chucked full of fat and sugar. Well, fat only gets gets full of fat, but you can pull blood sugar out of your blood and turn it into fat and store it in your fat. So when your fat cells are getting filled, your fat goes, ah, (laughs) and it makes leptin. (laughs) That's how I pictured it. Uh Uh, You can't actually hear your fat sigh, but if you could... Um, that's, and, and, and it makes leptin and your brain hears that leptin and it should be part of what makes you feel full. And they were going to give people leptin and it was going to make them feel full and they'd stop eating. And mm-hmm. it works amazingly if you're a mouse. Oh yeah. Bummer. It doesn't work so well if you're a human. It, it, it has, it's the same hormone with the same role, but for whatever reason, it didn't have that effect in humans. So they've been hunting around, right? Because there's a lot of these hormones. And that's what this new class of weight loss drugs is. They were like, oh, well, what about this hormone that your body makes after you eat? Mm -hmm. Does that last or does it have like a rebound effect? And also, I understand that for people who are diabetic, it's like a medical necessity in some cases, but it's also really difficult to get because it's such an effective way to change your body mass. Yeah, there's all kinds of interesting like societal questions about around access with that. Is there a rebound? Yeah, it it looks like if you are on it, you will lose as much weight as people lose like in bariatric surgery, which is kind of incredible. Hmm. If you go off of it, you'll gain the weight back, at least a lot of it. I don't know about all of it. And I'll just say again, I'm just watching the science come out. I'm not involved in any of it. But just watching these studies come out, it's super impressive to see because it's the first time that we've had a weight loss drug that seems to really have this this size of an effect. What we know now is that the effect is pretty sizable. If you stay on the drug, it lasts. If you come off the drug, it bounces back. Now, who's going to bounce back more? Who is going to bounce back less? Is there something you can do with lifestyle interventions to be able to come off the drug but keep the weight loss? That's the frontier right now. That's where people are at right now. And Herman notes that these drugs, like semaglutide, started off as diabetes medications that regulate insulin secretion. And if body composition is a factor in any cardiovascular health or diabetic conditions, these drugs can also help with that and lower high blood pressure or cardiometabolic diseases. Although my friends who are diabetic are not down with the general populace or a lot of celebrities taking this and gobbling it up while folks who have diabetes cannot get a hold of it that sucks. But again, it's a bigger picture of total health assessed by a doctor who listens and doesn't like write off other concerns as just weight related because actual weight doesn't tell you everything about organ health or your muscle mass or even your metabolism. In fact, I'll tell you a little secret. The best thing I've ever done for my body was in my late 20s. I took my scale. I took it to an alleyway behind my apartment and I smashed it with a hammer. And then I tossed it into a dumpster hard because a number fluctuating every day and not reflecting muscle or water was doing so much damage psychologically. And so I switched it and I tried to focus on how many steps I was getting each day because I knew the days that I went on walks, especially if I was outside, I felt less anxious and sad and I have more energy. And if you can't take walks, we've done other episodes about how just going outside, being around a tree for a few minutes can provide a psychological boost. But yeah, for me, scales are garbage, literal garbage. And I actually went to the doctor this week and it was a gynecology clinic and they actually had their scale set to kilograms, which as an American, I was like, sweet, I don't know what that is in pounds. I have no idea. I'm not gonna think about it or Google it because that's not the point. Well, when it comes to yo-yo dieting, I know the 
worst health I was ever in, body mass wise, depression wise, like autoimmune stuff wise, was when I was trying to get skinnier. And I just, when given the opportunity, I could eat like half a jar of peanut butter because I was Mm -hmm. just so pissed to be depriving myself. So I know that yo-yo dieting is part of it is, is probably psychological, but how much too is that metabolic and how do people avoid that if they're just like fuck this uh, it is so hard and it, what i hate is when people have these kind of conversations with folks like you and they say well here here's what you'd have to do <laughs> and they give mm-hmm. you know like there's one easy answer that people haven't already tried so i'll just start by saying it's hard and my suggestion is to if you are pissed off and <laughs> feeling deprived on whatever food, you know, whatever diet you're on or whatever nutrition plan you're kind of trying to stick to, then you're not on one that's going to be sustainable. Mm. And you got to find one that's better. And, you know, that's where I do think there's a place for intermittent fasting or for low carb diets, if you keep them, you know, if they're done in a healthy way or for vegan diets or Mediterranean or whatever. Um, but that's, I, I know it's hard. And it's a lifestyle, not a diet, right? I know that I'd be Thank like, I'm you. at yeah. my goal weight. And then I'd be like, sweet, yeah. <laughs> and go yeah. eat a, like a double-decker taco from Taco Bell. <laughs> I'm like, what happened to my, why don't I pants fit? Yeah. yeah. Okay, first off, I love double-decker tacos. Also, when I'm sick or I have a migraine, all I want is a Diet Dr. Pepper and Cheetos. And it's disgusting, but it's a decision made not by my body, but by my soul. But Herman told me that we all have a little bit of magical thinking around this stuff too. And it's really hard in modern culture and with the food available to folks in food deserts, on lower incomes, and really anyone to track how much fuel we're putting into our bodies and how our individual endocrine and neurological systems are going to react to them. And Herman says that there's such a stigma around body image and health and so much undue blame on individuals that it turns into a mental challenge and a stress to just try to tally numbers and understand this really complex and impossible system that he's been studying for over a decade. And if you have access to healthcare, talk to a trusted doctor and maybe get your thyroid or your blood sugars checked if you're feeling a little off. But okay, onward to some of the 49 pages of questions we got for Herman. I have so many questions from listeners. Can I lob them some at you? Oh, that's why I'm here, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. But first, let's donate to a charity of theologist's choosing. And Herman said the choice was very easy and he'd like it to go to the Hadza Fund. And the Hadza Fund provides health care to this hunter-gatherer community by funding an ambulance for the critically ill, resources, food, and medicine during hospital stays, as well as preventative health care like mosquito nets to combat the spread of malaria. And to find out more, you can go to HadzaFund.org. So thanks to sponsors of the show who made that donation possible. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, 
therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you are not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash ologies. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kid busy. Kiwi goes like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything. Allie Ward. 
And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay. Let's get some burning questions off your chest, including this first one about metabolic speed, which was on the minds of Julie Scott, Olga, Dawn and Eric Easton, Anne-Marie Everhart, Michael Wegman, Lena Stott, Lisa Roll, Sophia A., Sharon, Tara Lee Johnson, Valerie Bertha, first time question asker Angie Smith, and Abigail Ladd uh, is in Denver. Hi, Abigail. I am curious about the idea that we can speed up or slow down our metabolism just with like products, particularly the biggest loser study. The biggest loser study showed that like extreme dieting caused a slowdown in people's metabolisms. But then there's been some sort of debunking out of that that I've seen. So it seems to be really conflicting. And I'm just, I would love clarification. Well, so the first question was the easier one, which is, are there products out there that can boost your metabolism? And the answer is no. Okay. With a caveat. Okay. The caveat is there are some illegal things you can do huh. that will boost your metabolism uh, that are not recommended. And, and you know, it's so that's partly a joke. There are some illegal things you can do that would boost your metabolism, but you shouldn't do them because they'll kill you. Like are those things you snort? Are those things you get illegally by prescription? Yeah. So, uh, moving on, there's, uh, yeah. no, I don't know. Actually, so they used to sell this one, I forgot, oh God, I'm blanking on the name of it, that would speed up your metabolism. It made your mitochondria leaky. Yeah. And so they would just burn through all this energy trying to, to charge your ATPs. Okay. So, side note, I believe Herman is talking about this drug known as 2,4-dinitrophenol, or DNP for short. And it's been used in things like bombs and pesticides. But taken by alive humans, it ups your metabolism by 30 to 40%, which, of course, can melt away excess fat. It can also cause rapid heart rate, cardiac arrest, cell death, and hyperthermia, meaning you literally cook yourself. DNP can also very much kill you, so much so that people have used it to unalive themselves. So yeah, no, not worth it. You are wonderful as you are, which is living and breathing. And so they had to stop selling it, but obviously it's super terrible and really dangerous to mess with your metabolism that way. So no, your coffee in the morning gives you like, maybe like a little tiny little bump. Want a bump? But you cannot boost your metabolism. Everybody out there trying to boost your metabolism with whatever supplement you're buying, you're just being robbed. I'm sorry. Please, mm -hmm. for your own sake, just stop that. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you can't even really boost your metabolism very much with exercise, it turns out. What? And that's one of the big surprises. Yeah. So when you're exercising, you burn more calories. That's true. While you're exercising. And if you start a new exercise program, then yeah, for those first few weeks, 
you know, you'll, you'll be burning more calories by the end of the day than you were before you started it. But this really interesting phenomenon happens where your body adjusts. Ah. And so after a few months, you're not burning a whole lot more than you were when you started and maybe not any more than you were when you started. And so, you know, that's, that's some of the really surprising work that's come out of my lab and some others. So apart from field work, observations, and interviews, what does this lab work entail? Okay, well, in his book, Herman explains how difficult it was to do this research in decades past when you'd have to essentially lock someone in a metabolic chamber and measure the ratios of carbon dioxide and oxygen in the room and also collect pee from the entire state to analyze for metabolites of protein and stuff. But then, in the 1990s, when mass spectrometry analysis became more affordable, scientists were able to do this thing called the doubly labeled water method. And they had used this before in smaller animals, but it was more affordable now to use in humans. And this involves people drinking a water sample with special non-radioactive isotopes of hydrogen and oxygen, and then later analyzing a pea sample, maybe two weeks later, to see how much carbon dioxide they had produced based on what's left of the isotopes. So water, some pee, some mass spectrometry, so much easier than an airlock chamber. And yes, more affordable. And he writes in Burn. So what's the bottom line? How many calories do we spend each day? It depends, of course, but not on the factors that you might think. Here, here's a fun snapshot for you. We were talking about hunter-gatherers before. So my lab, our group did the first measurements of calories burned per day in a hunter-gatherer group. Mm-hmm. We went and worked with these folks called the Hadza in northern Tanzania, and they get more physical activity in a day than most Americans get in a week, yeah. you know, hunting wild game and getting wild plant foods. But despite that, despite that, to our enormous surprise, because we did not expect this going in, they burn the same number of calories every day as, as Americans do. What's going on? Yeah, because their bodies have adjusted to this really rigorous lifestyle and, and they're saving energy elsewhere. And your body will do that too if you start exercising um, a new exercise program. So, you know, you, you might not sort of wipe out the entirety of the exercise bump, but, uh, but a lot of it. And even if you increase your muscle mass by a lot, like if you're weightlifting? Well, so that's interesting. So that's understudied. You know, most of the exercises people do to lose weight are like cardio and you don't gain a lot of muscle mass. So that's not even a factor. If you do gain a lot of muscle mass, then what we'd expect that is, you know, for your size, yeah, sure. You're going to increase your energy expenditure because you've gotten bigger, right? Back to this whole issue of, of you know, what is metabolism? Well, it's your body at work. If there's more of you, yes, you'll burn more calories. But for your size, we don't think your expenditure will go up that much. Wow. I, so yeah. it's mostly diet, as they say. Oh, in terms of your weight? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's not even worth worrying about exercise for weight. Hang on. Very important message here. You should still exercise, by the way. It's really mm-hmm. good for you. And some of those adjustments that your body makes in response to exercise are probably some of the reasons exercise is so darn good for you. So I'm on team exercise 100%. But we have to think about exercise and diet as two different tools for two different jobs. So you know, diet's about diet for your weight and exercise for everything else. What about the serotonin component and the mm. endorphins? Is it mental health? I understand that exercise oh, yeah. can be as, as effective as some antidepressants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely right. And there's there's lots of great studies out there showing exercise interventions for depression um, yeah, is is a really good a really good tool. Like you say, as good as a, a lot of the, the drugs people take. Plenty of studies. Yes. So go ahead 
Get yourself a wingback chair, get a big cup of tea, and settle in for years of reading published studies. Cobwebs are going to grow in your arms because there's a lot. But here are a couple samples. So the 2017 meta-analysis titled, Is the Comparison Between Exercise and Pharmacologic Treatment of Depression in the Clinical Practice Guideline of the American College of Physicians Evidence-Based in the journal Frontiers of Pharmacology gave a recap of experiments, and it found that three randomized clinical trials compared four months of exercise to just antidepressants, and that all of these studies reported that exercise and standard antidepressant treatments were equally effective. And then another 2015 study in the British Journal of Psychiatry called Physical Exercise for Late Life Major Depression showed that the greatest improvements people had were with high-intensity aerobics, followed by low-intensity aerobics, followed by just antidepressants. And other studies show that exercise and medication can be an effective two-pronged intervention for major depression. So what is the message here? Well, it's not for me because I'm not board certified in shit. So you have to talk to a doctor and under no circumstances go off antidepressants on your own. And I say this as your friend. I say this as your internet father. And this spring, I've mentioned this before, but I went off Effexor to try medication for ADHD instead and for my hormonal issues. And guess who ended up in the ER with a panic attack? That was me. Remember that? That was me. And of course you don't remember because I don't, don't know if I mentioned it. But my point is, please do research. Talk to a doctor. Don't go cold turkey on your own. And also make sure that your loved ones know that you're changing any medication and that you have a lot of loving support. Or better yet, maybe just consider adding exercise to your medications if you're physically able to and see if you feel more amazing. And if you're feeling like garbage and are feeding yourself garbage, like I sometimes do, remind yourself that your body deserves fuel and nutrients and that companies marketing you things are in it to make money, not to make you happy. But what happens if you do all this and you start to feel healthier? And then that second part, yeah, so the slowdown in people's metabolisms after they diet, that's mm. a bit of a myth. No, uh, so that's depressingly true. So oh. you can slow your metabolism, you just can't speed it up. <laughs> if you lose a lot of weight, like they did in The Biggest Loser, people like people lost a human's worth of weight. Mm. It was talk about unsustainable. It was completely unsustainable the way they did it. And so the folks who managed to keep a lot of that weight off, even six years later, their metabolic rate was still slower than you'd expect for their size. Their body was still kind of trying to right the ship, right? That, that it's, a, it's a survival response. If you lose tons of weight right away, really fast, your body, you know, you're an evolved organism. We've been evolving for millions and millions of years. We have all these mechanisms in place that say, look, Times are tough. We got to, you know, tighten our belts and lower the metabolism until things get better again. And so that's real. That absolutely is real. And, and people in the biggest loser who kept the weight off for six years, their bodies were still in, in that mode. And the people who gained all the weight back, well, their metabolisms recovered because their bodies were like, yep, we, we did it. Good job, wow. guys. And I, I imagine it's just evolutionary processes helping protect you from future famines. Yeah, exactly. Every, Species will do this, just mm -hmm. as, as far as we can tell. Any species, given the opportunity to, to put on extra weight, will. And it seems to be because you know it has just been an, a truism, a fact of life for the hundreds of millions of years that animals have been evolving, that you could always end up in a lean time. And so you mm -hmm. always better be prepared. 
And yes, it's hypothesized that some people's bodies have a thrifty genotype and they're more efficient at surviving those lean times. But our relationship with processed and high calorie and low cost foods presents a challenge to tell our brains that we have to contradict hundreds of thousands of years of survival instincts and genetics every time we walk into a grocery store. Does cinnamon or ginger or any other herbs or spices actually do anything for your metabolism? I myself put cayenne pepper and black pepper in my chai every day, but for flavor. But the idea that you can take like a capsaicin pill and be like, bikini season, that is not true. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Cindy. What about individual variation? This was wanted to know by patrons Lovely Bites, RJ Doidge, Hannah Riddle, Matthew Walker, Amanda Loves Kurt, Quincy J. Byrne, Mish the Fish, Felipe Jimenez, Ghoul Next Door, Monica Olvera, Margot Lewis, Sarah Morcom, Griffin Russell, Julie Scott, and member of the BFF audio asking tier on Patreon. Aaron Ryan says, look, we're all thinking it. Why does my metabolism suck? Oh, I've got good news for you. Okay. Uh, it doesn't suck. All right. Uh, some of us do have just because of our genes or you know, maybe because of the way that the conditions in which we grew up, we're not entirely sure, but some of us do burn more calories than others. That's true, mm-hmm. uh, just inherently. But, and we've done this study in our own lab, we've done it other, seen it done other places. People who have slow metabolisms aren't necessarily more likely to gain weight. People who have fast metabolisms aren't necessarily less likely to gain weight. So we always blame our metabolisms. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, it really comes down to your brain. Ugh. So um, your metabolism is great. It's your brain that's giving you trouble. And it's giving you trouble because, you know, you're surrounded by all this really delicious food that you, you can't, you know, it's hard to pull yourself away from. Um, so many people, Greg Lewis, Valerie Bertha, Ryan Walsh, Les Johnson, Kala Turnbull, Matthew Wynn, and Ermel of Gramilkin. Also, Leanna Schuster, Anjali Hamali, Rebecca Cloud, Daniel Kelly, Hannah Boyd, Average Pie, Lauren Arn, Raniel Mondre, Margie and Dexter, and Cece Thaybirch. All asked, in Greg's words, how does aging affect metabolism? And does being an active senior make a difference? Does it slow down yeah. as you get older? I've read some of your research and I know the answer, but... <laughs> Yeah, this is one of the most f- fun studies I got to be part of over the last couple of years. We finally put together this like roadmap of your metabolism from birth till very old age. And so we know the answer to that. So first of all, as you grow up and get bigger, there's more of you, you burn more calories, right? So bigger people burn more calories. Men tend to burn more calories than women because this gets back to the, you know, what kind of weight are you carrying? Women tend to carry a bit more fat for a given body size. Men tend to carry a bit less. And so if, you know, fat is quiet, other tissues aren't. So men tend to burn a bit more calories just because of the body composition difference. Mm-hmm. It, once you control for that, men and women are the same. So the numbers crunched in most studies are based on the model of sex assigned at birth. But my non-binary and trans pals, I see you. So bigger is more, more fat for mass. You burn more calories. But once you control for that, so now we're talking about like a, like we're thinking about this in terms of like pound for pound, right? For, for a given size, how does your metabolism change? Mm-hmm. Well, it's really high when you're a kid from about one year old, it's at the peak, right? One year olds are burning 50% more calories than you need to expect for somebody their body size, mm. which is kind of incredible. And it's because of all of the stuff that your cells are doing all day to, to grow and, and be active and develop. And then 
you peak at about one year old, and then you sort of slowly come down through childhood and, and teenage years. And in your early 20s, you hit your adult level. So whatever you and I are at, Allie and Greg, you two and me, and where all of us adults, we're at our metabolism kind of plateau. Mm-hmm. And we're going to stay there. You're there from your 20s through your late 50s. Oh, wow. Late 50s? Yeah, it really doesn't change with menopause. It really doesn't change as testosterone levels go down in men. And I was really sure it did. I'm 40. I'm in my 40s. And I was really sure that my metabolism must be slower than it was when I was 30. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't look like that's true. And then after 60, it starts to decline. So that, that decline is real. And so active seniors, it might be the case that staying really active as a senior, you know, 60 years plus is a good way to kind of keep that decline at bay. What we'd love to know is, so, okay, when we see metabolism start to slow down around 60, that's your cells becoming less active, right? They're slowly kind of turning, turning down the volume knob there on everything they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's around the same time that people start to get sick. Your likelihood of heart disease, dementia, all the things really starts to kick up around the same time. And so that makes us think those things are related. And so if we can keep our cells more active, do we keep those diseases associated with old age at bay? Man, wouldn't that be cool to know? And wouldn't it be great to be able to use that kind of therapeutically by that's next step? And for more inspiration to take Zumba classes until you're 90, other than just having sweet, sweet moves, you can see the 2021 paper titled The Active Grandparent Hypothesis, Physical Activity and the Evolution of Extended Human Health Spans and Lifespans. And it summed up several previous studies that showed that about 20 minutes a day of moderate physical activity or 12 minutes a day of vigorous aerobic activity reduces average, otherwise sedentary person's relative risk of all-cause mortality by 50%. So you do that 20 minutes a day, 12 minutes a day of harder activity, your mortality rates go down by 50%, which if you live in the United States, that can help you dodge medical bills that could bankrupt you. So that's a plus. So the active grandparent hypothesis, what is that? It's one by evolutionary anthropologists to answer the question, doesn't nature just want your babies and then for you to die? Why would humans have evolved to be so active and not dead after they reproduce? Well, researchers found that in the Hadza and other hunter-gatherer societies, active grandparents will forge for up to six hours a day, taking that burden off of new mothers who are tending to the squirmy little babies. So the active grandparents out there foraging bring in more calories for the whole community, kind of like when grandma sneaks you an ice cream sandwich and you both promise not to tell your parents. Also, before any of you write me letters, I love you. But before anyone writes me a letter, yes, calories is the same thing colloquially as a kilocalorie. Technically, a calorie is one one thousandth of what we call a calorie. But yes, it's just confusing terminology. I don't make the rules. Denise and Scott want to know, is six meals a day to boost metabolism? Is that debunked? Six small meals? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I don't even, I'm not even sure exactly what they're talking about, but I can promise you it doesn't work. 
Okay. You'll see sometimes in like, how does this person who's definitely had like liposuction, how do they yeah. do it? And they're like six small meals a day. And you're like, okay. But then yeah. intermittent fasting goes completely against that. But I know people had questions about intermittent fasting, such as Elliot McCatarsney, Amanda Washington, Norma Vasquez, Lana Schuster, Monica Olvera, Denise and Scott Ology Files, Anna Elizabeth Firf Brownoff, Kate Munker, Aaron Gunderson, Emily Stoffer, Vanessa Frey, and Ellen Monroe. Uh, does that slow your metabolism because you're not eating for 12 hours at 16 hours a day? Or is that not enough yeah. to mess it up? The bigger switch on your metabolism is, you know, think about it in terms of like days or weeks of energy balance. So if you're intermittent fasting, but you're not seeing the weight on the bathroom scale change really fast, right? Because mm -hmm. when you're allowed to eat, you're eating enough that you aren't losing weight in a really fast rate then you're probably going to keep the metabolism impact pretty small. Okay. What do you do? Do you have a walking pad under your desk? Were you ever no. a chubby bunny as a kid? I personally, you know, I've never had a, to really worry about my weight. I'm one of those annoying people who <laughs> don't. And uh, I was a really skinny kid. My mom was like trying to pack me full of food whenever she could. I, honestly, I think it fits the research, which is, you know, I don't think about food very much. I just mm -hmm. kind of don't care. I like good food. More than that, I like nice meals with good friends. Mm -hmm. You know, my wife, she'll tell you, she thinks about, you know, lunch and dinner and snacks more often than I do. I think that's just true. And that is, is that, that's hardwired, that's hormonal, that's, oh, you had genetics questions, Heidi Wright, Joe B, Matt Cato, Valerie Bertha, Pavka 34, Devin McPeak, Aaron Burbridge, Matthew Walker, Diana Moreno, Magdalena Castillo, Catherine Regovich, Kay Colin Croft, Lannis J, and first-time question asker, Mrs. Nowak. So how much of your gene size is based on your gene size? And so those are the genes that are important as far as we can tell. I'm going to say all of them, certainly almost all of them, uh, are active in your brain. It's how you're wired. And it probably also, you know, your brain isn't a static thing. That's where people get brains wrong. You're not born with a brain that you have right now, right? Your brain is a work in progress from the beginning. And so the genes that help build your brain matter, but also the experiences you use to finish off and, and build those connections. And so probably both of them together. But by the time you're an adult, right, the cake is baked and mm. your response to food is what it is. And it, you're kind of working with what you've got. What about? Guts. Patrons Catherine Fox, Bonnie M. Rutherford, Nathan Howard, Nicole Austin, Earl of Gramlichen, Tristan Berg, Jesse K., and Catherine B., first time question asker. This one is for all of your simmering intestines, as well as Anna Ukuli, Emily Isis, Hey Artemis, Miranda the microbiome B. Question. Yes, Sarah God Dutton. Damn it. I knew it was yes. coming. <laughs> no, um, uh, Alana says, this may be gross, but I'm so curious and wondering if there's any connection between metabolism and they say bowl movements. I think they mean bowel movements, but that is let's good, hope so. That's a good typo. But how does your digestion change your metabolism? If it moves more slowly, do you have more satiety, which I always thought was pronounced satiety, or mm. what's going on? There's a great study actually out over the summer that showed that it had people on two different diets and the really highly processed food diet, their guts were able to absorb more calories more efficiently. And so they're getting more of the calories that they put in their mouths actually go into their body rather mm. than into the, into the toilet, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and people on the high fiber, they call it the microbiome 
you know, what the microbiome happiness diet or something like that. It was, that's not really it, but it was something like <laughs> meant to help their, their microbiomes. They had more fiber, was harder to digest, and they absorbed fewer of those calories and more of passed through them. Bye now. And so there you go. You know, that's something that simple. You can see it in action that absolutely the way that your guts work, the efficiency with which you pull calories out of your food and into your bloodstream, the kind of food you're feeding yourself, which will have an effect on that. All of those factors are going to, are, are going to play a role. This is the ultimate multiplayer game, your <laughs> metabolism. And so to think that it's just one thing, it probably is never just one thing, but it's okay. It, it doesn't, it's not wrong to think about all the parts that, that work together, but they are just parts that work together. Um, and the ones that are sustainable, they make you eat fewer calories without feeling miserable. Does the carnivore diet drive you crazy? Because evolutionarily, mm. we evolved to eat plants as well. What drives me crazy is when people want to sort of rewrite history and say, you know, it's not enough for them that the carnivore diet works for them. It has to be the one single perfect diet to rule them all. And it has to be proven by the fact that, of course, don't you know, dummy, that we evolved to only eat meat. Mm -hmm. That just pissed me off. Because mm -hmm. the evidence is really clear that humans have been eating a lot of plants forever, except in certain you know, special circumstances like the Arctic. So like, man, why do you have to ruin what we know about human evolution, what took so long for people to figure out, and you got to ruin <laughs> it just so that you can like enjoy your diet and be snooty? I don't get yeah. it. Again, for more on what hunter-gatherers do eat, grab his book, Burn, which is linked in the show notes to learn about his years of research and befriending the Hadza community in northern Tanzania. And I burned through it in a few days, and it's already influenced how I'm taking care of my bod. And my bod, which has been kind of a shit show of pneumonia and hormone chaos, is thanking me for caring. Actually, back to hormones. You know, we had some great questions about hormone replacement therapy. Um mm. You know, and I know that menopause itself and aging itself doesn't slow your metabolism, but Anuya Joshi, Kate DeHadway, Interstitial K, Lauren Arn, Diane Needham, Rebecca Rome, Jen A, Brittany Corrigan, Lau, Lisa Roll, and Kay Shannon, as well as Lisa Panic asked about during perimenopause and menopause, having less testosterone, does that affect mm -hmm. your ability to build muscle mass? And Oh, yeah. Um, we also had great questions from some trans listeners, Keegan Newman, Wayne Halliburton, and Jude Scout-Campbell, who asked, in Jude's words, um, I'm a trans mask person about to hit the two-year mark on testosterone, gender-affirming mm -hmm. hormone therapy. Both myself and pretty much anyone on T ever experiences what feels like an increase in metabolism. Why mm -hmm. does this happen? When will it chill out? Please, I'm hungry all the time. And who among us can <laughs> afford that many groceries in this economy? Thanks. Yeah. So testosterone is what's called an anabolic hormone. It builds, it makes your bodies build, it makes your cells more active. That is why people dope with testosterone mimics. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's, and they're illegal because they're incredibly effective. <sighs> right. And so if you are on testosterone for whatever reason, yeah, your cells are more active. You're going to be pr probably burning more calories and certainly your body's going to send in the signals. Hey, let's build some muscle because that's what it's good at. So when will it go away? Oh, man, that's actually an interesting question. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then if you're 
in menopause or for some reason your estrogen goes mm -hmm. up or down, I understand a lot of birth control pills and SSRIs can change mm. your body composition a lot. So what's going on with the estrogen? Okay, I asked these estrogen and SSRI questions for y'all. Megan Bolton, Shelby Smith, Chayanne Coles, Lizzie Martinez, Madeline Dunkel, Kendall M., Kelsey Larson, and Brittany Kaufman. We know what hormones are being given in those cases or what uh, hormones are extra. I don't know that we have lots of great studies that are, that are sort of counting calories in that context or measuring calories very well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is just my impression of what's going to happen physiologically. And you mentioned SSRIs. Those are, are all kind of different systems. So testosterone and androgens generally are muscle-building anabolic hormones that are going to tend to ramp that up. Um, the hormones that are taken for oral contraception actually mimic the hormonal state of pregnancy. Ah. Um, and so, or, or the second half of the ovarian cycle, which is the same as the early parts of pregnancy. You've kind of kicked in some mechanisms, sort of early pregnancy mechanisms there to, to, to put on some weight. And then the SSRI thing seems to be back to the reward systems in the brain and that you're manipulating those systems. And one of the outcomes is going to be the way that you respond to the reward of food. So if you experience more cravings for carbohydrates as your depression lifts from antidepressants, you can keep an eye on intake or you could not care and enjoy more pasta and smiling. I'm not a medical doctor, even a little bit, but do whatever keeps you healthy and happy. But let's get back to misery. Last questions I always ask are, worst thing about your job, what sucks, what's hard? Hmm. I love my job. There's got to be something that sucks. Paperwork. I'll tell you what. Yeah. I'll tell you what sucks. There is so much regulation right now mm -hmm. around the actual performance of science in American universities. Mm -hmm. You know, I have so many trainings and regulatory things I have to do, and it's all well intentioned. And, you know, but my God, <laughs> there's so much of it. There's so much <laughs> of it. We're paying this person at my university to talk to this person at my university. So that's the only frustrating thing, I think. I love to teach and I love to do research and I feel like I am one of the luckiest people I know in terms of the career I get to have. Do you ever lose sleep over it and does that affect your metabolism? Uh, yes and yes. Oh, so sleep does affect the metabolism. Oh yeah, if you get completely sleep deprived, sure, yeah. Oh, good yeah. to know. Um, I know you love your job. Is there a certain moment or a certain factor of it that is just your favorite? Just talking to you, Allie. Oh, stop. I'm, I've asked so many not smart questions, and I really appreciate it. This is probably one of the most like frenetic episodes where I'm like, blah, 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 what about this? There's no, I love so it. many questions I, about it. I honestly, so I, there's, there's, there's two things I love about okay. my job. And one is I have had the amazing good fortune a handful of times in my career to be the first, it at least feels like the first person ever to see something mm -hmm. or to figure something out. You know, it's, it's the discovery. I think every scientist lives for that. And any scientist who's been around a while and has had some success and has felt that. And that's, you live for that. I mean, mm -hmm. there's nothing better than that. And then the other thing I really do enjoy is, is talking to science, uh, you know, whether that's teaching or whether that's writing or whether that's conversations like this. I, I love to be able to share that because I think that's, you know, that's part of the job too. And it's a really fun one. Uh. Thank you so much for doing this. This is really fun.
So ask informed people uninformed questions. And thank you so much, Dr. Herman Ponser, for the time that you spent with us and all the research that you continue to do. Again, his book is titled Burn. It's linked in the show notes. And we'll also link his lab's website and his Instagram and his Twitter X handles so you can follow him there. We're at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Allie Ward with one L on both. And we have shorter kid-friendly cuts of our classic episodes, and those are called Smologies. And they're available for free. They're at alleyward.com slash smologies. And Aaron Talbert admins the Ologies podcast Facebook group. Aveline Malik makes our professional transcripts. Noelle Dilworth is our scheduling producer. Susan Hale is managing director. Kelly R. Dwyer makes our website and can make yours. And our lead editor in this episode produced and contributed a ton of excellent research, some from her own dissertation, Sapiens Indeed, Mercedes Maitland of Maitland Audio. And Nick Thorburn made the theme music. And if you stick around until the end, the episode, I tell you a secret. And this week is kind of weird. Okay, so I was working on this, right? I was listening to a playlist of like some new indie music. And there was this one song called Drop Dead by Katie Kirby. And no joke, there's a line about body mass indexes. And I was like, get out of my head, music. What are you doing to me right now? It was creepy, but it was fun. So there you go. Um, but yeah, put on a song, maybe enjoy some fresh air, be good to your flesh machine. And most importantly, be good to each other. All right, bye-bye. Zoology, litology, nanotechnology, meteorology, olfactology, nephology, seriology, selenology. Who doesn't like Emmy? Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday, and French fries are a food group where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.